0: All right, Mike. Well, first, thank you for letting me come in here and and uh, meet you, and for the tour. And um, it's really good to good to meet you and welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be on.
0: So, I, w- I always like to start by kind of getting the background here. I want to go into the details, obviously, of the Innocence Project and the work that you do here. But what initially got you interested in the first place, and potentially doing the kind of work that gets done uh, with the Innocence Project? What's what's the background there?
1: Well, you know, I think it was it was a process. Um I mean, I I went to law school with the intent of becoming a criminal defense lawyer. Hmm. And um but that was, you know, in the 80s before there was such a thing as DNA testing or actual innocence. And uh, and then I got out and clerked for a federal judge for a year in 1983 through 84. Uh and then started my own Um, practice doing criminal defense, taking a lot of court appointments uh, here in Fort Worth and, you know, did that for 23 years, Mm. whatever up until, um, you know, about 2005. And I started getting interested in innocence work, which is, you know, very much related to criminal defense, but it's, it's different. Um, and I I had a uh, a law school buddy who um wanted to uh start a nonprofit, which we did and you know, became the Innocence Project of Texas. And we started an affiliation at Texas Tech Law School and what was then uh Texas Wesleyan hmm. uh law school here in Fort Worth, uh and started Innocence Projects or Innocence. Programs with the students at those two law schools. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, we were, you know, the primary principals of the nonprofit. And, um, and, and, and so I became very fascinated with the work itself because, you know, the stories are so interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'd seen, you know, ha- having practiced criminal defense for over 20 years, I'd seen a lot of injustice. And, uh, I, uh, and, and a lot of smugness on the other side, you know, and, and, and I, it was, it was kind of infuriating to see. I mean, there's basically, there's the criminal justice system that exists in the minds of the American people, yeah. you know, that is fed by cop shows and cop stories in the newspaper, uh, which are basically written by cops. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, Bruce Willis movies, and and that sort of thing, uh, and then there's the real criminal justice system. And if you go down to the courthouse uh, on you know any weekday, it, you'd be appalled about what goes on. Yeah, you know, and it 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 is so far removed from the criminal justice system that exists in you know the typical mind of the American people that 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 was infuriating, and and I thought that. That the innocence cases, the exoneration cases, those stories, although those are not the only injustices in the system, those stories best illustrated what the system really was. You know, they 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 were not really outliers. They're 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 a product of the system, and um, and so all of that, you know, became very interesting to me. And of course the. The DNA exonerations that started to happen were, you know, the best illustration of that because those were cases that you could look at and see this person is innocent. Yeah. And, and, and then you look and you see, well, how did they get convicted? And you see the, the outrageous things that the system perpetrated in order to convict this innocent person. And 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 it 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 they're very much, you know, highlight all that's wrong with the system. They're yeah. not the only thing that's wrong with the system, but they're the sort of the, the quintessential examples. Of the system gone wrong, and they're sort of a a portal by which you can look into and see everything, see almost everything that's wrong with the system.
0: Yeah, and I want to get into the DNA component to this uh, as well. The the two words I'd love to get your thoughts on and an expansion on are the injustice and the smugness. Uh, what did you notice during that time that led you to that conclusion that those both of those words are are appropriate to be used?
1: Well, you know, certainly for the first. 20 years that I practiced, nobody, almost nobody uh, associated with the system thought that an innocent person had had ever been convicted. Probably never an innocent person arrested. I mean, it it just, if anybody who walked into the courtroom or walked into a DA's office with a straight face and said, my client is is innocent, they didn't do this, was going to be at best patronized and condescended to. You know, as someone who well, this person is just stupid, yeah, or this person just is inexperienced um you know and 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 at worst would be openly ridiculed um I mean just by way of example there there were not innocent people in the system, you know, and um and if if you say there are, point me to one and uh and and you know until d n a Anybody you pointed to, they'd go, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, I mean, kind of like you mentioned earlier. Well, what about this person in prison that says they're the ones that really did it? Well, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, somebody's paying them to do it or, To say that or threatening them to say that or or they're just trying to get back at the system. That's bullshit. Yeah. You know, um,
0: where culturally, though, do you think that that idea comes from? I think you're right that there historically has been a, a notion in America that if you've been arrested, you did something wrong or if you're in jail, you're a criminal. Where does that come from?
1: Well, God, that's a real interesting question. There's probably people that are much smarter and have studied that topic much more than I have. That could give a better answer, but you know, I think it comes from you know a synergy of sources. Um, it comes from popular entertainment. It comes from lazy journalists who get you know who ha- who are assigned the police beat, but get their stories exclusively from the police, and so the crime story is always told. in the you know, of course, I don't know who reads mainstream newspapers anymore, but but you know, for a long time, that's all people read and and tells, you know, the story of every crime through the eyes of the police only, you know, they get the, get the police media liaison to write the story for you. You know, they don't go out and interview um, witnesses. They don't go out and interview the family of the person who's arrested. Uh, they, you know, it's, 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 it's an easy thing to just go to a bar, have a few drinks and write what the police tell them. Yeah. So that, and then of course, politicians, you know, I mean, beginning I'm not saying it began there, but most notably um, you know, with the Nixon administration and the war on drugs and all the coded racist fear mongering that went on in and particularly in the Reagan years. But but you know, and you know, politicians who who get elected by instilling all this false fear in people mm-hmm. and then and then electing the politicians to to fight all these bad criminals that are you know knocking on you know banging on their doors um you know Reagan but you know i mean some of the worst federal legislation that's ever been passed was passed during the clinton administration hmm. um you know so uh, it's it's not it's not limited to uh you know to republicans yeah. it it is a it's, it's a, it, it's, it's something that, that politicians from both sides have made a lot of mileage on.
0: It it strikes me as something similar to the news industry in the idea that if it bleeds, it leads, you know, if you can scare people, it gets attention. Yeah. And if you can scare people thoroughly enough, they might vote for you yeah. to protect them. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. The smugness that you were talking about, what what did you see in that regard and who, who was most notably uh, emanating that kind of? Oh,
1: you know, I'm thinking of your average um, lying prosecutor, assistant district attorney, you know, um, you know, it, it, it. In in any case you go and, you know, you try to plead your case to the assistant district attorney who's handling the case and negotiate something. I mean, most cases are worked out through. Um, plea deals, yeah. and um, and 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 you know it, <laughs> it. It and and of course these a lot of these people are, are pretty not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty young out of law school. Yeah. Don't really have a lot of experience, but all of a sudden they've got a hell of a lot of power. I mean, the assistant district attorneys um, are the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. Uh, the police are pretty close behind. Um, the judges are a distant distant third and of course criminal defense lawyers don't have any power hmm. you know uh and so you know in and, and, and once these often young inexperienced attorneys have all this power and of course they've got this whole machine and bureaucracy backing them up you know they've got investigators that they can send out to arrest people or or you know intimidate people as they interview them they've got They've got all this power behind them, and so any any story you try to give them about your client, about why um, your client deserves um, leniency, or or why your client's innocent, or 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 whatever, um, or an explanation for why your client may have done this thing, you know, is is just met with pure cynicism and, um, you know, sort of a fa- a fall hardness, mm. you know, um, and, um, and, uh, a, and, and a, a smugness look, you know, your client's a dirtbag. End of story, you know, you know, I, 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 that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I, it, it's funny. I, I feel like this is something I want to touch on l- later in the conversation as well, that, uh, part of I think what the DNA evidence and a a lot of these long-form television docu-series are which a lot of people are very into and What it introduces I think in the mind of the viewership is doubt Absolutely, and I think what you don't often see in the characters at least in the ones that I've seen in the prosecution Is any sense of doubt? Absolutely, and there tends to be a uh, an utter self-righteousness about the work that they are doing, that they are the arbiter of the law, that they're protecting the citizenry. Um, it it also strikes me just in, in thinking about this, that there's, what is the downside risk for being wrong in their position right now to them personally, it, and you can tell me if you think this is incorrect, uh, nothing happens to them if they're wrong. But if they're blatantly wrong about the conclusions that they make that they've made and they're using the full force of the government and their own intelligence and they end up putting an innocent person in jail or potentially killing them in the death penalty. Uh, w- what is what is the pushback, the social pushback or the professional pushback that would disinhibit them from pursuing that?
1: Uh, Next to none. Uh, I mean, it. it- You were, I think, touching on a good point. Uh, Why why is there so much resistance to um, even giving defendants the opportunity to prove their innocence? I mean, say I've got a a client who wants a a post-conviction DNA test. Why is the DA's office resisting even giving the test? You know, when the test will in in some inst- in some instances the test will will um, be totally dispositive, either to prove they did it or prove they didn't do it. And and it's not, they're not that expensive. Mm. You know, mm. it's not that difficult. What is the um, what is the reason um, for for such resistance to to that test? And um, you know, and and of course. The answer is they don't want to be proven to have made a mistake. Well, why do they care? If it if it's proven they made a mistake, nothing's going to happen to them, you know. Um, to it, it, I mean, they're they're it, it, they're they're not going to be for the most part, you know. They're not going to be ostracized. They're not going to be. I mean, there are some isolated instances that are an exception to that, but uh, but in each of those instances, they brought it upon themselves yeah. through dishonest resistance. Yeah. Uh, that ultimately caught up with them. And and I don't know how to answer that other than what I see again and again. You know, um, and I read about this stuff and I've had personal experience with this stuff. When, when, you know, this is sort of another um, aspect of that. You know, say you get a DNA test back that proves your client's innocent is is to see the contortion some DAs will go through to say well actually here's the real here, here's what must have been the explanation for that and 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 just to lay out a totally absurd scenario i mean if you have time i'll give you an example please now this is this is this was not one of my cases but i've seen very similar examples in other cases and and I it, it it in some that were my case, you know, it um and I and I think I know the case this it, I was listening to a psychologist at a seminar talk about tunnel vision and confirmation sure. bias.
0: I was just thinking of that phrase. And, but yeah. and
1: and um you know anybody who does this work is very familiar with the phenomena. And uh, and and he was talking to a room mostly um, criminal defense attorneys. At this particular seminar, and uh, he said, "Well, so let me give you show you an example of confirmation bias. This is a real case. This is a real case. Um, I'm not going to name it, but it's a real case. And uh, and I think I know the case he's talking about. But uh, the uh, you know some poor 11 year old girls murdered and raped, found in the woods, and they find uh, um, you know." DNA in you know her sex organs and her mouth and in um, in her anus hmm. and um, they do a DNA test on it and it comes back to her older brother's friend and um, the older brother's friend's attorney says well what happened is the older brother's friend spent the night over there a couple of days before and slept in the bed and masturbated, and then she slept in the bed after that, and that's how she got her DNA on her. And so all of us in the room kind of were like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, he goes, yeah, and when I tell that to a room full of police officers, they out now start guffawing at that point. Now, let me change one fact to what the real facts are. It wasn't the defense attorney that came up with that theory. It was the prosecutors and the police that came up with that theory because they had already convicted somebody else. Yeah. So, um, so what's the explanation for that? Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, obviously, they're not concerned with the public safety. Because they have obviously put the wrong guy in prison and they're trying to justify it and leave the dangerous guy out on the street. So they're not concerned with public safety. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen to them. So they're not really concerned about their own careers, not rationally anyway. So what is it? I I analogize it. And and I guess you've got to be careful about saying this sort of thing. But I I analogize it. it, it's, It's like a religion, you know. It's like trying to convince somebody that their religion is wrong, that their religion is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I think it goes that deep into
0: them. Yeah. It, it's funny. It, just in hearing you speak about this, and I remember having this thought, watching some, some uh, docuseries uh, related to, to people who are convicted, who are innocent, that right, the, in normal life, in an endeavor in which people are engaged in trying to determine the truth like science. Right, there's a convergence that eventually comes out over time about what is objectively true. Right. And it just, I remember feeling and watching some of these shows that that was not clearly in any way, what, where the mindset was of people who are involved in cases. Some of that is understandable in the sense that you are being hired to represent the interests of your client or the state. Um, at the same time, I'd be interested to get your take on this as, as a lawyer, the truth matters. And that is at least on paper, the idea of the the, the justice system is that the truth, the the truth is blind. The truth will prevail. Um, have we lost that or was it just never there in the first
1: place? That's a real good question too. (laughs) Um, you know, um, and it
0: It, it just, just to add one quick thing because your your comment about prosecutors not wanting right there's this new incredible technology that gets invented that actually lends so much more insight objective evidence about what may or may not have happened and people are resistant to that oh yeah that that just that fact alone just strikes me the clear conclusion is that you're not interested in what's true you're interested in defending your own ego yeah. Or your own reputation. Whether that's happening from the prosecution side or the defense side, that seems to me to be completely inexcusable and unethical.
1: I couldn't agree more. And and of course, you know, from the defense side, I mean, we're always punching up. Sure. You know, and 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 we have an, an, an ethical duty to represent our clients' best interest, you know. Uh and but, you know, we we also are. our you know, have an ethical duty to the court and to the bar to, you know, pursue honest defenses and not to suborn perjury and all that sort of thing. It's not like just because we have an ethical duty to represent our client's best interest, anything goes. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, but the prosecution has a strict duty to the truth and justice and, um, um, and, you know, protecting the public, whatever. And it, 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 and, and sometimes they do. I mean, you know, there are, uh, there have been, there are, there are a new um, crop, for lack of a better term, of, of progressive prosecutors that that we're seeing um, elected in in really key places across the nation. Um, so it, it's you know, I, I, when I say prosecutors, they're not a monolith. They're 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 all different, and and I think there is some change. I think you kind of alluded to this earlier. I I think what DNA and the DNA exonerations did is change the narrative mm. a little bit or at least present an alternative narrative that had never really been there. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it moved the needle a little bit. It didn't totally take over the narrative. Yeah. And And it didn't really change the narrative so much as present an alternative narrative that had some credibility to yeah.
0: it. I'll tell you a quick story. So when I was a senior in college, I told you I went to Duke. Um, that was when the Duke lacrosse case right. happened. And I will never forget that experience because I knew some of the lacrosse guys. I used to play basketball with them. They didn't have a great reputation on campus. They right. were regarded as a rather arrogant, boorish group. Arrogant assholes. <laughs> arrogant, rich, entitled. Um, yeah. And a, a little aggressive. Yeah. And I remember hearing, I was on spring break, and I remember hearing about this story, and like everyone else on campus, I assumed it was true. Yeah. And uh, it took months of time for there to be enough evidence, I think, for that community to have a sense of actual doubt about what happened. Um, I remember in the aftermath, there were dozens of professors there was this media firestorm everybody was on campus the black panthers were marching in durham uh professors were asking our new university president richard broadhead i think to kick the lacrosse team off campus to immediately expel these three accused kids and i don't close to 100 professors i think signed this letter in support because there was such a certainty of what had happened right now, there were things that happened that people may have some ethical qualms with that objectively did happen. There was a party with with strippers. It I think optics-wise looked terrible for Duke where you had these Northeastern lacrosse kids with African-American local Durham strippers who were coming to a house. Right. Not a great look for the school. That being said, that is a completely different story than three of them gang-raped a woman in their bathroom. Right. And, uh, then I remember what ended up happening personally, just in the psychologically, like the unfolding of my own biases, uh, was I was dating a girl at the time who was in the sorority with the girlfriend of one of the guys who was accused and universally this guy was beloved and was known as this extremely ethical guy, a very, like a gentle giant type character. And he's one of the three. He was one of the three. Yeah. Reed Seligman was yeah. his name and is his name. Uh, and as soon as that accusation was made and then some of the other evidence was Reed was the, uh, the guy who there hap- there happened to be an ATM camera that night mm-hmm. that photographed him taking out money and, exactly at the time when the assault was supposed to be taking place. Right. Right. Um, that over enough time, I I think I eventually concluded like this may actually not have happened as it was, as it was told. Um, my understanding is that M- Mike Nifong, who is the DA right. withheld DNA evidence from the defense attorneys, which had indicated that this woman had something like seven different male DNA on her person or inside of inside of her. Yeah. Uh, And over the course of many months, they were exonerated, but you know, culturally there was, I remember I I would go on runs with Duke of Paralon back in Pennsylvania after I graduated and it was like looks of, of horror. Right. Right, right. And I, I, I just don't get, people don't like to admit when they're wrong in the first place. Right. Um, but I, I, there doesn't seem to often be an about face, a, a mea culpa of boy, I got that wrong. And I wonder right. how many other times in life I've reached right. potentially self-righteous judgments on people that I just was completely ignorant about. Right. Um, so that was a, that's a personal story that I think changed the way that I thought about how quick I am to make judgments, especially when there are incentives culturally and in, or environmentally to, to, right. to do that. Um, Anyways, I'm not sure well, if you're familiar well, with that. Well, case.
1: The, the, that story, the 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 Duke lacrosse story, you know, sort of fit in to the um, the narrative everybody already had in the, their mind about these guys. It sort of nicely blended in, yeah. and so I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of taking some liberty here. I don't, I I never really followed that case that closely. I mean, you couldn't help but but follow it some. If, if you know, you're in my profession. But there was just a whole lot about it I never really quite understood, you know, um, you know, and 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 uh, and and I thought it looks a whole lot like something that never, nobody's ever gonna, nobody on the outside's ever gonna really know for a fact what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that, but, um, um, but I and 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 you know what I. I wasn't there a long article about in the New Yorker or something? I uh, probably uh, th- that's probably where I got my information. Okay, if there was, and uh, and and it seemed like Nifong, and and this is not that unusual, was pretty much defended by all the local attorneys as being an ethical guy, a pretty good guy, mm. for the most part. It seems like, yeah, and and of course he, I guess he lost his law license. He
0: over. did. Yeah. yeah. And he spent, I, he spent one day in prison, uh, and he was an elected official, right? I mean, yeah. that, that was the other component to this is that while he was prosecuting these kids, he was also running for reelection. Uh, and I think that story played very well into his political hands. And so the, the incentives, just all things considered seem to be off in terms of, are we trying to actually get at what the truth is here, right, uh, and what justice could be or should And,
1: and I guess obviously, I, I, I was not local there, so I didn't understand all this. But, but I also I thought, well, okay, he's standing up for these African American strippers. How is that politically advantageous in North Carolina? I guess I didn't under, you know, not being there, I didn't understand why it was to his political advantage. Yeah. To take such a hard line on this case to the point where he was you know bending the rules and cheating I mean it seems like it would have been more to his political advantage to let these well-connected rich kids go yeah and then and then solicit heavy donations from their daddies yeah right so I, so that was something about it that didn't quite make sense to me
0: yeah I think I think and i'm i'm taking liberties here as well i I, i'm not i I don't know that i remember the demographic statistics exactly but i think durham at the time was more than 50 percent african-american and that the largely white duke community was not the majority of the population right right and he was if they were even registered to vote which they probably weren't i was still registered in pennsylvania for example um so Back to your work here in in Texas, and maybe this is a good time to jump into some of the revolutionary um, or or the revolutionary discovery of DNA testing and how it has affected your own work. Um, Talk, if you can, about what the discovery of of DNA and its admissibility in court has done for the work that you do.
1: Well, you know, I I guess... The first post-conviction DNA exoneration was 1988, I think, out of the Chicago, out of actually Lake County, just outside of Chicago. And um, I think, you know, it was a new technology at the time. Mostly it was seen as something that would to be used to prosecute. Hmm. And um, and then, of course. During the 90s, you know, the the National Innocence Project, uh, Barry Sheck started. you know, basically, pioneered using DNA um, science post-conviction to exonerate people who had been innocent people who had been wrongly convicted, and um, and and of course, you get um, a body of work <laughs> of exonerated people and and that are unquestionably innocent. And I think you know, probably in many cases have actually through DNA identified the actual perpetrator. Yeah. So there shouldn't be any doubt about their innocence.
0: Not to interrupt you. If you could, what specifically provides the clarity of the truth, maybe in one case that comes to mind that is results in an unequivocal in your judgment, in the public's judgment uh, conclusion that is rendered that these people didn't do what they were accused of doing.
1: Well, I can I could talk about several cases. Um, um when I went ju- let me talk about cases I was in Sure, with.
0: I'd love to love to hear them.
1: Um I start in two thousand seven. Craig Watkins got elected DA in Dallas. Um and uh first African American ever in Texas to be elected district attorney. Hmm. In Texas, but definitely first in Dallas, and and it it, it alarmed a lot of people. I mean, um. And uh, anyway, I, I just had another thought, jumping back to things. But let me keep on this train of thought. <laughs> let me keep on this train of thought. Uh, and because you know practicing over here in Tarrant County, I, I had some cases over in Dallas. And we just hated the DA's office in Dallas County. Tarrant County's always been the, the DA's office has always been reasonable as far as DA's offices go. They they had traditionally had what's called an open file policy. Um, you, know, uh, it, 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 you know, it you know it it was a reasonable DA's office. You know, Dallas was a different story. You know, they were the big city. They were the big boys. They they treated you like shit. When you went over there, um, if you wanted discovery, they said, OK, go go talk to your client. Your client was there. That's how you get your discovery. Um, you know, they they had a uh, this, you know, little joke that's just a joke, but it's kind of indicative of what the culture was, which was anybody can convict a guilty person. It takes real talent to convict an innocent person, you know, and we got a lot of people over here with real talent. And, uh, I mean, it's just a joke, but it's, you know, it's like cop humor or whatever. It's just stupid. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, Henry Wade had been the DA, the legendary Henry Wade had been the DA since, what was it, late fifties? I don't know. I mean, he, you know, prosecuted Jack Ruby. Uh, he, he, he's the, the Wade in Roe versus Wade. Interesting. You know, um, and, uh, um. And he was just an old school, you know, tough prosecutor. You know, uh, almost all of his former uh, assistants will defend him. You know, uh, he's you know no longer with us. Uh, but um, you know, it it, it 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 in my community, the Dallas DAs always had a bad reputation. You know, maybe the cops loved him. You know, maybe you know the big moneyed interest over there loved him. But you know, to to people who had to go practice in their courts yeah. over there, it, it was a bad. And then, of course, they started having some high profile exonerated. The Randall Dale Adams case, you know, uh, which was Errol Morris's first documentary, Thin Blue Line, um, who was um, who came within 24 hours of being executed, you know, and. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, there was a big 60 minutes expose on it and then the book and all that. And he was ultimately exonerated. Uh, I mean, that was before DNA, but, um, but he was almost executed and he was prosecuted by, you know, Henry Wade's first assistant. And, and, and what they did to convict that innocent man was horrible, was horrible. And it was all exposed. Then there was a case, a man named Linnell Jeter, um, that was, big news for a while most people have never heard of him now but he was uh i think he was an engineer uh, with texas instruments or something that came here from one of the carolinas african-american falsely convicted of an aggravated robbery that he had nothing to do with and once again 60 minutes in the media exposed the uh the corruption in the prosecution of him and he was exonerated uh so um then when, you know, uh, DNA, uh, Texas passed the post-conviction DNA statute in 2001, Dallas started to kind of lead the nation in DNA exonerations. I mean, it wasn't by that. I mean, they were having seven, eight, nine, you know, uh, leading up to Craig being elected. And uh, and of course, a lot of those were. The DA's office fighting testing every step of the way. But somehow these guys getting a test. Mm. And once they had the test, there was no choice but to exonerate them. So Craig got elected and scared people because he was not not part of the prior administration. He beat, as a matter of fact, his opponent was the first assistant, I believe, from the prior administration. Mm. So he was basically beat the de facto incumbent. And it's when Dallas went Democrat you know, and, uh, all the Democrats won and he was one of them. And, uh, we were over here just enjoying what was going on in Dallas. I mean, the analogy I always thought of was, you know, the helicopters leaving Saigon, you know, as Saigon was falling, you know, people were abandoning the office. And, uh, and I think some people were afraid to abandon the office because of what might be uncovered if they left, you know, and, uh, uh so anyway, we I didn't even know Craig at the time. And but I I I uh, um was enjoying <laughs> him bit being elected and what in the reaction it was causing in the office. And uh and he did run on a you know, whatever, reforming things, smart on crime, uh, right on crime. Uh I, I think he was really, as far as I know, the, we didn't even have the term at the time. The first of what we would now call progressive prosecutors, you know. Um, but the whole concept of progressive prosecutor was, was very foreign at the time. I mean, it, prosecutors uniformly across the nation got elected, whether it's Los Angeles or New York City or wherever, got elected by saying, you know, I'm tough on crime, yeah. period. And, um, so anyway, he hired, um, Terry Moore, who's here in the office now, to be his first assistant. And um, and she was a criminal defense lawyer here in Fort Worth like I was and and had been a top felony prosecutor uh, in the DA's office here and then a top felony prosecutor with the federal system. And then she herself had run for DA here in Tarrant County, but you know lost to the incumbent. Uh, she was a Democrat. In Tarrant County, you don't win unless you're a Republican. And, uh, but he hired her to be his first assistant. and generally the way da's offices run the elected da generally uh is the is the, the man or the woman that goes to the rotary club and makes cam- makes speeches and you know campaigns and kisses babies and um generally never try a case um and are not necessarily all that involved in the day to day running of their office they hire somebody to do that and many times that's called the first assistant or the chief of staff or something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and that's what he hired Terry to do. Uh, and she had a lot of experience doing that, you know, all the HR matters and problems, you know, hires, fires, um, disciplines, tries, tries the, the cases, the high profile cases that need to be tried, you know, that kind of thing. And so she came, really came up with the idea of starting a conviction integrity unit over there. And, uh, this is, you know, in early 2007 when he first takes office and Craig's like, uh, what's a conviction? Nobody, you know, what is that? You know, cause there never had been one. Yeah. It, you know, people say, Oh, now they were the first one. We really weren't just the first one. We, we invented the concept mm-hmm. really, because there hadn't been even that concept of, of a unit within a district attorney's office reinvestigating cases in which maybe the jury got it wrong, you know, and so, um, she asked me to come over, you know, lee private practice and come over and start it wow. and run it. And so, I did. And that was in July of 2007, <clears throat> you know, whatever, six months after Craig took office. And, you know, we didn't have a template to go by or anything. We, we, uh, and I'd never been in a DA's office, but, um, but they gave me enough authority and power and leeway such that you know, um, everybody had to do what I said, <laughs> you know. I mean, they could push back if they wanted to, but ultimately if they wanted to keep their job, uh, they had to fall in line. And uh, they couldn't go over my head because Terry and Craig were going to back me up, you know. And um, and so we continued with the DNA exonerations there. Let me give you one example. Please. I'm sorry to ramble like that. No. Um, there was a guy named Patrick Waller, and uh, um, he had been convicted in the mid-90s of uh, being one of two African-American men who had abducted a couple off the West End there in Dallas. The West End in Dallas used to be a happening place. Maybe it still is. I don't know. But one one evening, abducted a couple, um, a white couple, uh, took them in their pickup truck at gunpoint, uh, I think made them, you know, take money out of their ATM and then took the couple to um, a house. Actually, it's just off the RL Thornton freeway. It was an abandoned house at the time and took them down in the basement and were going to sexually assault them or assault her. Uh, and, it's it's kind of an odd story. About that time, another car was circling the house or something, and they went outside. It was a another. It was an interesting looking house, and evidently, this couple, one of them was artistic and was sort of looking at the architecture. And they took this couple down to the basement, abducted them at gunpoint, and then uh, one of the men sexually assaulted one of the women. It was the the woman from the first couple, hmm. and then something happened and kind of spooked them a little bit and they ended up you know running off and one of them took one of the vehicles and one of them stole the other vehicle and so they both took off in separate vehicles. the perpetrators the perpetrators yeah and so uh no leads i mean there's just you know general vague descriptions of these two men height weight age and the police the Dallas police at the time had it in for this young man named Patrick Waller. Um, he had narrowly escaped, I think, being arrested and charged with a, stealing a car or something. And this detective had said, well, I, you know, you got away this time. Classic deal. You got away this time, but I'll, I'll get you for something. And so this detective, I believe, decided that he was going to put this on Patrick Waller. And, you know, he didn't even care about, you know, getting a second person, even though two people did this. And so he did what what happens often and explains a whole lot of these wrongful convictions, he put Patrick Waller on, on no evidence, you know, put Patrick Waller's photo in a, in a photo spread and somehow persuaded three of these four people to pick his photo, you know, and, and you can do that in any number of ways. You can either you can do it, say, that's the guy who did it right there. Right. Or you can say, take a close look at number two or, you know, you can do it any number of ways.
0: Psychological tricks
1: well a yeah, it's it's not even it doesn't even go, you know, <laughs> it it's more blatant than just a psychological trick i mean it's just telling them who to pick basically yeah. um guiding them who to pick and so he gets um arrested and charged there never is a second suspect and um they um take him to trial and, and he is he's identified by three of these four people as the guy who did it And he is the one who sexually assaulted this one. He's the one who sexually assaulted this one, And so um, he gets convicted and he gets, I don't know, two life sentences or something. And so in 1992, excuse me, 2002 or 2001, right after the DNA statute came out, he was the very first person in Dallas to ask for a DNA test. And the Dallas District Attorney's Office fought it. And and they, they had everything to test. They fought it. They successfully fought it. They fought it. This was their argument. Their argument was that, um, well, he was technically convicted of aggravated kidnapping and aggravated robbery. He wasn't convicted of sexual assault. So we shouldn't have to DNA test It, it. You know, that shouldn't have anything to do with this case. Well, they had done primitive blood testing on the sexual assault kid and had testified that the perpetrator had the same blood type as Patrick Waller. So they had used that, that they said he was part of 13% of the African-American male population that had this blood type. So they had used this. So why can't we now DNA test it? And so that was the argument. That was, It went up on appeal. The appellate court says, yeah, sounds good to us. No DNA test. Well, when we came back, part of, our, part of what we did is go back and look at all the old Rejections of DNA, of requests for DNA tests. And he was one of the first ones we came across in, in 2007. And so I contacted his old lawyer, um, who's now on our board of directors, Gary Udishan, and asked him, you know, if he thought his client would still want a DNA test, you know, now five years later, six years later. He says, yeah, sure. So we got it. We got DPS to test it. Sure enough, it's not his. There, there's a one, There's a foreign male, strong, more strong, foreign male DNA profile in the sexual assault kid that is not the woman's husband or any consensual partner. It is that of the perpetrator. It's not Patrick Waller's DPS put it, you know, the police put it into CODIS, the national database, and hit on who it was. And... um It was a a violent offender out of Dallas, Um, and um, he had had been – after this had happened, he had been put in prison for a violent home invasion. Um, He was about to parole out. Um, He did parole out. We went and interviewed – The actual perpetrator. actual perpetrator, one of the two. Yeah. We went and interviewed him at his parole office. We kind of surprised him. We – the DA's office, you know, I mean, I'm not some – criminal defense attorney. I'm basically I've got a badge. <laughs> yeah. I've got some authority and bureaucracy behind me. Uh and interviewed him and you know, I would say within 2 hours he confessed and 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 named who he did it with. Um because you know that was obviously a point of interest. And um so we did our homework on that guy, found that guy, subpoenaed him to the grand jury. And this is, you know, 10 years or 12 years after all of this and, and his, his co-defendant, you know, under, we had to give his co. by now, the statute of limitations had run on this. So really they, they didn't have arguably didn't have any liability, but we gave his co-defendant immunity so that he had no reason not to tell the truth. And he says, yeah. And he told the whole story, told them, you know, where he, you know, that checked out where he, where they abandoned the cars was checked out, you know, all this stuff. And so, um, and so, you know, Patrick was exonerated. Um, and, uh, you know, had, had the DA's office agreed to a DNA test back in 2002, the statute wouldn't have run yet. And, and theoretically, really more than theoretically, they would have been able to prosecute the actual perpetrators had they been interested in the truth, but they were not interested in the truth.
0: Yeah. For those people who don't, no, and this is for my own education as well. What ha- when a, when a statute of limitation expires? What, what does that mean? What what happens?
1: Well, it, it it's more complicated than people make it out to be. But but basically, it means that enough time has passed since the crime was committed that nobody can be prosecuted
0: for yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, and that that's what happened in this case. We had while I was there, we had case after case where um, people had been denied DNA testing, uh, where we did DNA testing, and where we were able to exonerate the actual perpetrator, and in many cases identify—excuse uh, me—exonerate the the falsely convicted individual and and identify the actual perpetrator. In some of those cases, we were able to go back and prosecute that actual perpetrator.
0: The database that you were talking about that. Into which it sounds like the DNA evidence was submitted. For people who don't know that acronym or that word, what is that? How does that work? Where there's, it sounds like there's a national database of of other DNA. You know, it's
1: it's um, once again, it's 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 a little bit complicated, but there there is there is a national database, um, CODIS. That is, there may be one more than one, but the, the basically the FBI administered national database. What
0: is CODIS? Is CODIS. What is that say?
1: uh, consolidated. I, I'm going to I would have okay, to look no it problem. up. Real no quick. problem. Yeah. Um, C O T U S C O D I S D
0: I. Okay. Got it. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, and, and then there's, you know, other databases, state databases, but there, it, it, the CODIS is administered by law enforcement. Yeah. And, um, and, and whenever, um, it, 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 tracks several things, in, 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 um, it, but one of the things it tracks is, is if certain people, usually it's violent offenders or whatever, or sometimes in some states, I think anybody that goes to the penitentiary has to give a DNA sample yeah. that then goes into the repository of the DNA database such that if, if their DNA profile turns up at a crime scene, at some point, they can be identified yeah. from that database. It also um, will, uh, you know, if, if, if a crime is unsolved or sometimes even if it is, if, if there is relevant, if there is a relevant DNA profile collected at a crime scene that doesn't belong to anybody that anybody knows of, uh, either because the case is unsolved or because the police believe they know who did it. It's just they don't match the DNA profile, but they have enough other evidence. Uh, But if that profile seems to have enough relation to the crime scene, they will put that unknown into the database. And um, and sometimes, you know, they will identify a serial killer that way. Maybe Well, this is the same unknown profile that turned up at this other location not that far away where a similar murder was committed that turned up at this other location, not that far away where a similar murder. So we don't know who it is, but we're pretty sure it's the same person. Yeah. So it, I mean, that's a a simplistic description of the database.
0: Okay. And I I do think most people now have a basic understanding of what DNA means. It's it's, it's a, it's a unique individualized marker for a specific human being. Series of markers. Series of markers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and where you and I may have the same marker at one particular, as they say, loci, we're not going to have the same marker at every loci.
0: Right, right. Um, the Let's talk Waller's first name again. Patrick. Patrick. To introduce some humanity here, I assume prior to you going through the entire procedure that led to his exoneration, you met him. And you got to know him as a person. Is that fair or no? Does that not happen? Well, he had his attorney.
1: I wasn't his attorney. I see. Gotcha. I mean, obviously, I I have met him, you know, and and um, and got to know him pretty well since. But but you know, we're the DA's office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're 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 just after the cold hard facts. Yeah. You know, we've got no humanity. We're just <laughs> we're just we're just there to exonerate innocent people and to convict guilty people. You yeah. know. And, and, but, but we're tethered by the truth. So as a result, we end up exonerating a lot of innocent people.
0: Tell me about him and what you had learned about him. It sounds like he spent more than a decade in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. Right. I
1: think he was right. at 15 years. 15 years. I mean,
0: you know, this, I grew up on the Shawshank Redemption, right? I mean, there, there is a, if public speaking is the number one fear in the country, going to jail for something you didn't do, having your name and your reputation ruined and then sitting behind bars, knowing that you didn't do what everyone said you did is one of the, it has to be existentially one of the biggest fears any human being can envision for themselves. Tell me about this guy. I mean, what, what, what was his, what, what was his mental state? How did he persevere through that? Anything that, that you think is you relevant know, to him? I would love, you to know. know,
1: he was, he was, he was very young at the time. I forget exactly how old, but I mean, he may have been twenty, but I don't think he was much older than that. Um, um, kind of a mama's boy, um, you know. Great mother. Uh, there, w- at the time we were doing this, the the Discovery ID channel was following us around, and they ended up doing a six part series called Dallas DNA, hmm. and and his case is one of one of those. Um, or a part of one of those. I think almost all six episodes have tell two stories. So there's about 10 or 12 stories that they tell, hmm. and his is one of them. And, and it, 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 it does a good job of capturing Patrick's warmth, you know, uh, his, um, um, you know, his devotion to his mother and his family. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, at the same time, uh I I I suspect, and I've talked to him quite a bit since then. I mean anybody would, there's been some problems with readjustment.
2: Yeah.
1: You know. Um I mean he's got this big gap in his resume, you know. Mm. Um and uh, and and I, I don't I don't think he's bitter towards anyone, although there have been some isolated instances of the police going back and messing with him. Um, and, um, um, but you know, he's, um, uh, I think he's, he, he did, he was able to take advantage of the, uh, compensation statute in Texas, which, you know, carries with it, um, an annuity, a monthly annuity. And I think he has decided, I think, I don't know, I don't want to speak for him, um, but, um, he, I think he has decided he's going to spend the rest of his life staying very low profile. Yeah.
0: I can't blame him. What happens when somebody gets exonerated and with a recognition that it was really the state overreaching its powers that took away his liberty and his life financially. What is he given? What, what sort of, you know, most uh,
1: of the time, nothing, nothing. It's like, we let you out of prison. You're welcome. Uh, Texas does is have, uh, not all states do. Texas does have a compensation statute, but it's very limited. Uh, it's it number one, it's limited to people who are quote found actually innocent by the court of criminal appeals. And so you're kind of, you know, someone who's, who, who is actually innocent is sort of At the mercy of the court in whim of the Court of Criminal Appeals as to whether the Court of Criminal Appeals finds it sufficient evidence to find them innocent, actually innocent. Hmm. And the Court of Criminal Appeals has described their burden as Herculean. In other words, you know, it's not enough to be actually innocent. It's not enough to prove you're actually innocent. You've got to prove your actual innocence by a Herculean burden of proof. So not everybody's able to do that, yeah. and 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 people who are not able to do that, even if they're able to obtain relief on other grounds, like say um, their attorney was ineffective, um, or or the prosecutor hid exculpatory evidence, um, but but they're not found actual, you know, they're not found actually innocent. They don't get compensation. <laughs> uh, there, there's there's one exception to that, but I I don't need to go into. But even even that. You know, without that statute, probably none of these guys would get compensation. You know, you read in other states in particular about these, um, you know, whatever, the Central Park Five or the Exonerated Five or or whoever that received these, you know, um, sizable settlements from the entities, Uh, you know, New York City or whatever. Those entities don't have to do that, you know. I mean, it, it. I don't know all the details of those, but it's politics and 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 all that sort of thing. And that in in perhaps just the goodwill of the, you know, people who run the city, that give them that. If you go to court on one of these cases, and say go to federal court and file a civil rights claim against the city, the police department, the detective, the DA's office. In federal court, you'll be lucky to get to a jury. Ninety-nine hmm. percent of the time, you're going to get poured out before you even get to a jury. Hmm. The way the law is, you know. I mean, there's you know as now everybody seems to know about, but but we've been dealing with for along the qualified immunity that police officers have, and, and and the and the absolute immunity that DAs have, and um, so none of these big money settlements you hear about were gotten through a jury and and if you and and if you do if you were able to get through the labyrinth to get to a jury and persuade a jury to give you that kind of money the court of appeals or the supreme court will take it away from you Hmm. and and there's a pretty well-known case uh out of new orleans um harry connick senior was the elected da you know his son junior's a pretty well known musician. Yeah. But his, Harry Connick Sr. was the elected DA in New Orleans forever. And and it's I don't know, I forget the, the guy's name, versus Connick. And uh in and, and basically the DA's office engaged in reprehensible conduct to get this guy convicted. And he was ultimately exonerated and won a big verdict in federal court and, and, and the very conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals actually upheld it. The Supreme Court took it away from him, you know, and that's just, he's lucky he got that far, you know. Um, so, you know, although, you know, you, you read a lot about, you know, so-and-so got $13 million or whatever. That's just through the benevolence of somebody. Mm. That's not because they were able to go to court and win. And so if you're in a jurisdiction where... um the city council or the police say, fuck you, you know, um, take us to court. Um, you're not going to recover.
0: Yeah. So is it fair to say that most of the people that you have personally worked with who have been exonerated have have not been compensated for their time in prison?
1: Well, a fair amount have because they've been found actually innocent. Yeah. Um, and and, and or, or they've gotten relief on multiple grounds, including actual innocence. We were able to meet the Herculean burden. Yeah. Um, there is one other way in Texas that that came later, but now applies, and that is if you if if your conviction is vacated on some other ground other than actual innocence, like say prosecutorial misconduct, yeah. and 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 so the case comes back to the district court for retrial. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true of an actual innocence finding as well. It's, it seems crazy, but somebody can be found actually innocent and then retried. Jeopardy doesn't attach under Texas law. That, I've never seen that happen. But, and, and if when it comes back, if the elected DA files a motion saying, even though they were not found actually innocent by the Court of Criminal Appeals, I find that they're actually innocent, hmm. they can file a motion stating that. And ju- if the judge signs off on that, also finding that they're actually innocent. And they can receive compensation that way as well.
0: Okay, and if if compensation is given in the if the Herculean burden is it, it has been met in Texas, I, hate, I
1: hate that term by the way. But, okay. I, but I didn't invent it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what kind of what are we talking about here? Because you it, never it,
1: talk them, you never hear them talk about the Herculean burden of proving somebody guilty to begin with. Fair. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well,
0: what what is it? A per day spent in prison. Compensation, yeah. what, what, the, I mean, what does that look like? It,
1: it's per year prorated, if you know for you know uh, if uh, for months and days and, and such. It, it's uh, it's eighty thousand a year for every year. Um, it's 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 more than that if you're on death row. I forget maybe a hundred or something if you're on death row. Okay, a year for every year that you're in, and 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 that is figured in a lump sum and then um and then an annuity that begins one year after you get your lump sum, a monthly annuity, and that is figured say you were in prison for um ten years, that's eighty thousand a year, eight hundred thousand dollars yeah then you get an annuity um, valued at eight hundred thousand dollars that kicks in a year after you get the lump sum, and then you get the monthly stipend I see for life, unless you get convicted of a felony okay, in which case it cuts off.
0: And that's specific to Texas. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and and if you only live another year, your family doesn't get it. You know, you just, it's unique to you. It's unique to you. Yeah. Now we've tinkered with that sum, and they can, they're, they're, you know, they can elect to have secondary beneficiaries and that sort of thing, but it's, it's, it's basically, um, you know, the, the, the money ends with your death. Yeah. Basically. The ref- it, it also ends if you get convicted of a felony.
0: Gotcha. There I think you, you, it was something like, uh, the, uh, the program for prosecute, prosecutorial, prosecutorial integrity or something, something like that. The name of the program that you ended up heading up, um, that seems to be an, uh, example of an institution reforming itself from within, or at least attempting to, um, you invented it or your team seemed to just basically come up with the template of how to try to do this. Has that taken off as a model among, in other cities? What? Where are we right now in terms of your judgment as, as to the, the ethical nature of the way we are handling, uh, our own ignorance our own historic mistakes in the in the legal world
1: yeah it, it i mean it has and um i don't know are you if you're familiar with the national registry of exonerations um but it's um it it's it's uh was founded by a law professor at the University of Michigan named Sam Gross hmm. uh and uh it's uh, who, who still runs it, I believe. And, and we actually did a lot of work with him when I was in Dallas. Um, he's actually the one that brought the San Antonio 4 case to me. Hmm. But um, he, they, they do this intensive um, uh, or have this intensive database about every exoneration known since, I think, 1984 uh, in the nation. Uh, And and they break it down. They have a lot of academics working for them, and they break it down every which way by state, by crime, you know, analyzing the cause of the wrongful conviction. Um, Anyway, the the this is the March came out March thirtieth, twenty twenty one, and the the twenty twenty annual report. And he talks about, and they often talk about um, now, and here it's it's. uh, The importance of professional exonerators, professional exonerators, in other words, innocence organizations and conviction integrity units, CIUs played a central role in 84 exonerations, 61 percent of the total in 2020. Hmm. So what happened? You know, Craig started getting a lot of good publicity because there were all these stories. I mean, people were getting exonerated and it was all this. I mean, the, 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 the successes were so spectacular. I mean, Patrick Wallers, um, I, I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. I, uh, um, uh, I mean, I think there were, you know, close to 20, 25 men that we did while, while I was there. Uh, Thomas McGowan, uh, you know, the, the case I mentioned earlier uh, that involved Ashtabula. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, DAs being the politicians that they are, sort of, you know, sort of taking notice and like, wait a minute, this guy's becoming a rock star doing what? You know, maybe, you know, we need to find out what his trick is so that we can, you know. Institute that same trick, and, and maybe you know it, it'll help us politically. And so, um, Craig and you know, really um, me. Sometimes we're invited to go to these DAs' offices. We went. I kid you not. We went to the the Pittsburgh DAs' huh. office. That's um, 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 what's the mountain range? What county's that? Allegheny. Uh, uh, Allegheny. Yeah. Ca- Allegheny County. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, we went. They flew us up there to talk to them about what we were doing. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, of course, Craig went on speaking circuits and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and he was reluctant to do it. He was concerned about the political blowback, you know. But he did do it, you know. Terry talked him into doing it, and he did do it. And it was the smartest thing, ironically, the smartest thing politically he ever did. Hmm. It, it, it's probably, and I think he would say this, that Because he faced very stiff opposition when he ran for re-election in four years. And this was probably the thing that got him re-elected, you know, uh, that pushed him over the top. And um, but now, you know, they are there, you know, and I can't tell you exactly how all this happened. I just know it did. Uh, There are now and most of them call them Conviction Integrity Units. Uh, in Los Angeles, and, of course, a very progressive DA was recently elected out there, uh, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in, I think, Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, um, all over Texas. I mean, of course, Dallas still has one. Uh, there's one in Tarrant County, Travis County, Bear County, Harris County. Hmm. Um, so they're all over Texas, and they're all different. You know, and they all have, I think they're all have different procedures and processes and all of them, I think have a little bit different missions. And I think some of them, honestly, their mission is, 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 is the same mission as everybody else in the DA's office, protect the institution, you know,
0: it's all optics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all optics. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, but, but there are some that are for real, um, You know, I mean, the fact is, you know, if you really get into the nitty gritty of a wrongful conviction, some people are going to be hurt and some people are going to be pissed off. Yeah. And uh, and it it might be people that you have to work with. Yeah. You know, and so as a result, a lot of times it just doesn't get done, I think.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What do you think can be done in those circumstances? Right. I mean, it it seems like any sober minded, reasonable person would want any ethical citizen would want an integrity program like this in every city in the country and shouldn't really stand for anything less than that. If we're going to aspire to be a country that lives up to its, to its principles, what, what can be done to fight back against the mere optics, uh, creation of a program like that, or just complete, uh, abdication of responsibility altogether and not even considering creating a program like that, what, how, how can we, how can we, what can we do there?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, once again, that's a real good question. I mean, one thing is to elect the right people into office, Yeah, you know, and of course, you know, the elected district district attorney is a very, very powerful position, Um, you know, traditionally all over the country, Um, you know, and in, in a County like, tarrant county there may be you know 15 16 20 criminal judges there's only one district attorney yeah and that district attorney has the power to indict those judges you know uh and and that district attorney has the power to decide who even gets charged with an offense and who doesn't even get charged with an offense you know and and once the decision is made to charge somebody with an offense their life is changed forever yeah you know and even if they're Acquitted or exonerated, their life has changed forever yep. so um so they're very powerful so one thing is to elect the right people into those powerful positions um, and you know the other thing is to call attention when 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 you know when the district attorneys and the police are are um um Abusing their power, uh, acting dishonestly, uh, acting for their own short-sighted political gain at the cost of truth and justice is is you know I mean thank God there's a free press and a First Amendment yeah you know to to cause as much exposure to that as possible
0: yeah the I'm looking now at the exoneration pamphlet or or uh, compilation that you have in front of you right now. What's the total? How, how many people are we talking about that have been exonerated in the last? It sounds like since 1984, so 36, 37
1: years. You know, I I, I forget what the the figure is. It
0: looks like it probably thousands, thousands. thousands. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, um, this is just for 2020, but um, you know it it, it it's uh, and and what, what's important to keep in mind though is that when you look at every one of those and you see what they had to go through to become exonerated. And you see the luck they had, and they see, you see the kind of individuals many of them were and had to be in order to persevere through all this. You realize that the number of exonerations is only a small fraction of the number of innocent people who've been wrongly convicted. Cause there, there, there has to be, you know, 20 fold that many people who have not never been identified or exonerated. Yeah. When you see the extraordinary circumstances surrounding every one of these exonerations.
0: Yeah. That was what I was going to... One of the things I wanted to touch on is what the number... Undoubtedly, this is not all the people that are in prison um, wrongly.
1: And and I would say, undoubtedly, it's only a very small fraction. Yeah. I mean, it has to be.
0: Yeah. What, what would you guess the number is now, right? I mean, if something like a hundred people a year are getting out of prison. Um, how many people in total would you guess fit into the category of absolutely innocent are in there?
1: You know, I, I, I tough to know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to know. And I, 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 people get hung up on numbers in, in, and, yeah. and if I say a number, even though I, you know, with all the disclaimers that I'm just guessing, then all of a sudden that,
0: sure, sure. <laughs> that
1: becomes gospel yeah. you know, or, 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 or that, or that gets attacked.
0: Yeah. Well, you know? What seems to matter moving forward is that we do we just get better and we do things that we we implement programs and procedures that will help blunt some of this or most of it or maybe all of it or close to all of it in the future as time moves forward. Um we've talked about DNA and that DNA is one of the best tools for exonerating people who have been wrongly convicted. What else is available? What else might be available in the future to help shed light on the truth and exonerate people who are in prison wrongfully?
1: Well, you know what what DNA did and has done and and, and continues to do is, like I said, it identifies a body of work which you can look at and go, okay, all of these people, you know, have been exonerated. All these people are innocent. What do they have in common besides the fact that there happened to be DNA? And, and um, you know, I th- I think, you know, almost to a person, they are, you know, in, s- in some shape, form or fashion, part of a marginalized, traditionally marginalized community, even if it's just that they're poor. You know, you don't see, I mean, every once in a while, a rich wh- white guy will get convicted of something, but you don't ever see a rich white guy falsely convicted, an innocent rich white guy falsely convicted of something. Yeah. You know, um, and 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 so what it has done is it's it's identified, I think, in a lot of ways how they get wrongfully convicted. I mean, they're innocent, so there's no real evidence that they did it. I mean, that's a contradiction almost. Hmm. So any evidence that they did it is generally manufactured some way or another by the police or whatever, and and maybe it's done with good intent. Maybe it's done because the police. It's the way they've always done it the police think they've got the right guy so it's okay to tell the eyewitness to help the eyewitness pick the right guy mm. you know and if it is the right guy nobody's ever going to be the wiser. you know they just you know cheated to get a guilty guy convicted yep. but if it's the wrong guy you know it makes a huge difference but what what it, it it shows that and and this report confirms this you know the biggest cause the biggest factor in all of these wrongful convictions that have been identified because they're exonerations is official misconduct. You know, people say eyewitness ID wrongful. It's not really mistaken. Eyewitness ID. It's official misconduct, which includes police misconduct and prosecutorial misconduct. Hmm. That is the most common, biggest factor. And of course, every wrongful conviction may have several factors, but, um, um, but that's the most common factor. In all of these,
0: what are examples of professional misconduct?
1: Uh, the police telling somebody who to pick in a photo spread. Sometimes that gets mislabeled as mistaken eyewitness identification, but it's not really. It's official misconduct. Yeah. Uh, somebody else comes up and says, "That's not the guy who did it." In hiding, hiding that testimony, hiding that witness, not disclosing that evidence.
0: Mm. Yeah. The system essentially work, working against the defendant in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, well, in, in a way that breaks the rules.
0: Yeah. How so? Because evidence, all evidence by law needs to be presented to both sides?
1: All all exculpatory or mitigating or impeaching information or evidence that is in the hands of the police or the district attorney should be ex disclosed to the defense. And if they if if they are aware of such evidence and they fail to disclose it to the defense, then that's official misconduct. That, and and if they and if a court and, and if who knows how often that happens, but sometimes it happens and it is discovered. And and if it is discovered, you know, after the conviction, if a court agrees and the court doesn't always agree. If the court agrees that that evidence that should have been disclosed, that wasn't disclosed, if had it been disclosed, it would have made a difference in the case yeah. or likely would have made a difference in the case. Then they vacate the conviction yeah. on, on that's a, a Brady violation, a form of official misconduct.
0: And that's mandated by law, Having turning over that kind of exculpatory evidence.
1: Well, it, it's um, as as the Constitution has been interpreted by the Supreme Court. Um there's not necessarily a specific statute that says Texas now has the Michael Morton act that, that, that mandates it by statute. But, but prior to that, it was just more or less, you know, um, case law out of the Supreme court, uh, you know, initially the Brady case, Brady versus Maryland yeah. that said that, but that was, you know, in the early sixties. Um, and so then, you know, of course there's been, um, hundreds of thousands of cases interpreting that since then. Yeah. And, and, and really, I think the DNA exonerations have changed this a little bit. But for the most part, what you found when, when Brady violations were discovered was the courts, the appellate court saying, yeah, but they look pretty guilty anyway. You know, they probably would have been found guilty anyway. So we're going to find that this Brady violation, while reprehensible, is not material. And so we're not going to vacate the conviction. And and I and I think the DNA exonerations have have changed that narrative a little bit. I think I think the courts are are more likely once once a Brady violation has been identified, the courts are, are slightly more likely now to find that the, the violation was a material violation and would have made a difference in trial.
0: Gotcha it sounds like you must at some point have transitioned from that role in the integrity unit to what you do now, uh, full time, I assume. What, what talk to me about those years? It sounds like you, you began your work in the, uh, in the integrity unit around 2007, 2008. What's happened to you between then and now? And what, what led you to do this, this type of work with the innocence project more um, definitively or consistently or, uh, day to day?
1: You know, I, I, uh, I did it for four years. Um, Terry and I both left. We both started 2007 and we both left in 2011. Uh, that was almost exactly four years for me, more like four and a half for her. Um, and, uh, and went back into private practice, you know, doing criminal defense. And went back, you know, I had to um, leave the Innocence Project of Texas, which I co-founded in 2006 to go to the DA's office. I had to, you yep. know, leave uh, that organization. So I rejoined as a board member for the Innocence Project of Texas when I left. And then, you know, one of the first cases that came to me was the San Antonio 4 case when I got out. Yep. And um, uh, so I, I devoted a, a whole lot of time to that case uh While maintaining a private practice, I still maintain a private practice hmm. um and uh um, and and then we had sort of a an administrative turnover in two thousand and fifteen and i um became the executive director um so actually um you know rather than um i mean actually you know on staff running. The Innocence Project at Texas, yep. really at the end of 2015.
0: Okay, you've mentioned the San Antonio Four a couple of times. Um, for people who are completely unfamiliar with that, you can go into whatever detail you feel comfortable doing. What happened there? What What was the case?
1: Well, it was um, four young women uh, in San Antonio, Texas, in 1994, um, who um, had uh, just come out or fairly recently come out as gay. Uh, And to keep in mind, this is San Antonio, 1994. Uh, And they're 18, 19 years old. Um, None of them had ever been in any trouble. Um, I think two of them had gone to high school together and were high school athletes together. And uh, uh, they were working Um, Christy was working towards going to veterinary school, I think, Christy Mayhew, um, Anna Vasquez was, uh, you know, had started, had started college, had to drop out because of, or had to discontinue, take a hiatus because of money, I think, and was working, um, at a restaurant, I believe, and aspired to be a nurse. Or at one point, I think she said she even aspired to be a police officer, Hmm. um. And, um, you know, um, all of them, all of them are very close with their families. Although, you know, at that time, I think there was maybe some disagreement or, 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 um, some tension, tension yeah. with, with their coming out. Um, but, uh, one of them had, uh, two nieces, uh, that, um, came to visit that, and she was Pretty close to them, I think. Um, they were a very close family, and uh, stayed with them for a week or two. Their, their, her sister and their father had were either in the middle of a divorce or had recently gotten a divorce, and uh, I guess I they were already divorced by that time, and that's a whole another story. But um, they came, and and um, you know, these four women were friends. Liz lived at the apartment complex where the nieces stayed for i think a week, maybe a little over a week and it was a normal by all counts you know and, and the other three were coming in and dropping by and and um uh, you know visiting with the nieces as well and by all counts was very normal this this occurred you know in and around August of nineteen ninety four and um and then all of a sudden evidently um and and, and and you never know what children say in these instances. People say, well, you know, well, the child said this. Well, the child said that. Well, you don't really know what the child. All you know is what some crazy adult says the child said. Hmm. And then, and then you know, ultimately, you know what the child comes to say. But you really never know. But supposedly there was, um, you know, the one of the children said, with some prodding, said that, something inappropriate had happened when they were at their, you know, gay, gay aunt's apartment. And, um, and that was milked into something that people started calling outcry. And once you call something an outcry in that situation, then, you know, (laughs) whoever becomes the target is, is screwed uh, because they've been named in an outcry. Um, And um, so this. Um, they they took them to this um, pediatrician, a well-known, well-respected pediatrician. I mean, she was, you know, part of this part of the courthouse um, machine. She was well-known at the courthouse. She always testified for the state and for the police. And she was a doctor and the judges liked her and, you know, all that sort of thing. But she always, you know, testified that, yes, this is proof that a sexual assault took place and so she they were examined by her and she claimed to have found physical evidence of a sexual assault in her sexual assault examination and uh, and, and ultimately um, you know came to court and testified to that and and, and then the the two little girls that were the women were charged there were two different trials Liz the aunt went to trial by herself in 1997. The other three went to trial as a group, and, and Liz was convicted and given 37 and a half years or something. Um, the, the, the second trial was all the other three, and they were convicted and given 15 years. And, and the, 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 the children's testimony was contradicted each other. It couldn't have been, tr- parts of it couldn't have been true. Um, they contradicted themselves one trial to the next trial. Um, in in, in significant ways. Um, But what was consistent is this doctor getting on the stand and saying, well, somebody sexually assaulted that child, you know, because there's physical evidence. And, you know, she'd draw a picture as if that was, you know, some kind of proof. Draw a picture of what the physical evidence was.
0: What was it specifically that she was getting She
1: said that one of the little girls had a scarred hymen at 3 o'clock a healed scar on her hymen at 3 o'clock, which this was all new to me. But it turns out, um, and, and, you know, maybe I, before, I, before I get into the spoiler alert stuff, <laughs> um, they're, they're convicted. They, they maintain their innocence. And um, um, the, the, the documentary tells the story pretty well. In uh, the documentary, so much of it's done in real time, which makes it extraordinary because at the time the documentary, documentarian approached me, I, I was fairly, I just pretty much started the case and she asked, you know, my permission, would I give her access and all that. So a lot of the footage is while the women are in prison still and we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're searching for some way to, you know, um, overturn their convictions. And, and it turns out, um, one of the, you know, by now the two girls are young adults and and one of them recants and, and apparently had been doing so for a while. And she says, none of this ever happened. Um, you know, our, our father, um, pressured us into this, um, you know, um, turns out Liz, the aunt had turned down his advances at one point. Um, and and no, it didn't happen. All my memories of my aunt are good things, hmm. and so that was interesting. Now, if you do this work at all, you understand that recantations are never enough because yep. the 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 smug prosecutors and judges say, "Well, you can't believe recantations." You know, you just can't. Well, I mean, why are they less believable than than the initial? T- I mean, there's no data that backs that up. You know. They just say, "Well, you can't believe them just because we say you can't," you know, and uh, but about that time, um, it started coming to my attention that other people had done the research. Uh, we learned that what the doctor had testified to at trial was scientifically absolute bullshit, and um, uh, and, and fortunately, she when she did the initial examinations. Um, she did it with an instrument called a culposcope, and she took photographs. And so through the cooperation of the DA's office, and they were very cooperative with us throughout this process, we were able to get copies of those photographs and get them to, um, well, a, a nationally known ex- expert, Astrid Hager, who coincidentally I, I talked to yesterday about some, wow. about this case. And she was she's nationally known expert in the area. And she looks at the photographs and she goes, there's absolutely no evidence, physical evidence of sexual assault here. These are normal examinations. And and I'm like, well, what is it at three o'clock that she thought? She goes, there's nothing. There's nothing. We had a sane nurse, you know, from Corpus Christi look at them as well. She said the same thing. She said. I, I, I don't know what she was taught because there is absolutely nothing here. I mean, I don't know what. Looking at the photographs, I don't know. They just and and furthermore, they both agreed that they now know that that so sounds like a mansplaining stuff, but that hymens do not heal with a scar. In other words, what she said couldn't have been true. Mm. And and um um and and so ultimately. The Astrid Hager, the nationally known expert, knew this. You know, um, physician that testified at trial. Her name's Nancy Kellogg. It's no secret. And and uh, and applied and and you know, expert to expert, scientist to scientist, said, you know, you really need to retract that testimony because you and I both know it's bullshit, and uh, our words to that effect, and and she did. She did. She gave an affidavit recanting her testimony. And uh, plus, we had, you know, these other experts chiming in. And so so now we've got not only a, a recantation, we've got physical scientific evidence corroborating the recantation, you know. And so we did other work. I mean, they, they all passed polygraphs with flying colors and you know people say well polygraphs aren't reliable well the police use them Hmm. you know uh are they just not reliable when you know when it turns out they didn't do it (laughs) you know and they all passed polygraphs with flying colors they were all evaluated for you know were they sexual predators or whatever and all those tests all those evaluations turned out very favorable and we presented all that in in a hearing and um the at the district court level, as the as the uh, documentary shows, the district judge said, "Well, um, I find that the science was faulty, and under this new statute that we helped get passed, the Innocence Project of Texas helped get passed, uh, that um, uh, they they deserve a new trial, and I'm not going to find them actually innocent." And uh, so. Under Texas procedure, that goes straight to the Court of Criminal Appeals for them to evaluate it independently. And, you know, I guess about a year later, they came out with their decision that just, we just won across the board. You know, they just exonerated them across the board. Um, great opinion, long opinion. Uh, so, you know, that's in a nutshell their story.
0: How long were these women in prison?
1: Well, um, Liz was in prison from the time of her trial because her, her sentence was so lengthy. She was not eligible for an appeal bond. So she was in prison from night. I mean, she was you know charged in 95. So out on bond, which is, you know, of course not in prison, but still no picnic out on bond until her trial in 97. And then at right as she was convicted, she was taken into custody and then released again on bond you know after we filed the writ in 2013 yeah uh, the others were convicted in 98 they were eight cuz their sentence was only say only 15 years they were allowed to make appeal bonds and so they ended up they they lost their appeals in the appellate courts you know and their written opinions said because their appellate lawyers had raised insufficiency of the evidence the appellate courts in their written opinion said well we agree that this testimony is unreliable and all over the map but what about this physical evidence you know how do you explain how this physical evidence got there yeah. and so um, you know that really assisted us in 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 arguing how harmful the mistaken the mistaken scientific yeah. testimony was yeah. And um, so they all made bail after we filed the writ in 2013. Now, so um, um, Cassie and Christy were in from, like, I guess 2001 when their appeals came back affirmed and had to turn themselves in, which is also part of the documentary, until they made bail in 2013 when we filed the writ. Now, Anna paroled in 2011 i think and so she was out on parole for a couple of years when we got the writ um, filed and, and the others made it out on bond
0: yeah the expert i kathleen you said her name her nancy name, kellogg uh, na- sorry nancy kellogg the, the the inaccurate dr nancy dr, kellogg. dr. nancy kellogg right I think incentives can explain a lot of human behavior and a lot of virtuous and unethical human behavior. What is the downside risk for a doctor to get on the stand and present with great self-confidence a bullshit story that they've made up but they're so eloquent and well credentialed that people who are on a jury who know no better but know that this person is intelligent and has an MD uh, is telling the truth. In other words, what's the incentive for people or the blowback, the downside risk for being completely wrong about the story they're presenting to the jurors?
1: They're really none. (laughs) Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's back to what we were talking about before, you know, ego, whatever. Um, you know, I mean, she still testifies to this very day as far as I know. Um, and, um, um you know, I mean we gave her an opportunity to come clean and she took it. So I think she minimized um what um what damage you know it could have caused. Uh but uh um you know I, I Do you think that was- the the thing is the thing is I don't think she would have ever come clean had we not filed a writ and called her out even though she would have known that her testimony was in error because you know that by all accounts the science changed with these sea change um tests uh data collection um um tests with with young girls that was done in 2007
0: yeah I think this is reminding me of the Mark Twain quote, which I'm going to butcher, which is it isn't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what, you know, for sure that just ain't so
1: yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's exactly like that.
0: Yeah. The, I guess, I guess, um, when you look at where we are now versus where we were when, when you started doing this work, and where, where we you know, can, can potentially take this direction. We've talked about some reforms, some, some programs that can help mitigate some of these issues. Um, I guess maybe b- before I, I go into that, I, I want to maybe in closing talk more about you and the work you do and what you would like people to know. The work you do seems to be utterly quixotic to me you're fighting such an uphill battle, but it's obvious how much you care about this. There's no way you would have stayed in this for this long if you didn't really care. Um, where does that come from with you? What What's that story that keeps you fighting these, these battles where you're fighting against these institutions? You're fighting against people you think are entitled, oftentimes, and smug. What keeps you in the fight?
1: Uh, <laughs> I... I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I what, and, and, this is, you know, not really a fair answer or an answer, uh, but I, it, it, it's not a complete cop out either. Uh, it's the successes. Yeah. You know, um, the successes are, are so, um, um, or can be, are so spectacular, uh, and so rewarding that, um, I mean that that's what keeps me in it.
0: Yeah. You are a savior to some of these people, right? I mean you without your work and your organization's work, a lot of these people would be sitting behind bars.
1: Uh you know, gosh, that's um I, I I'm real hesitant to agree with that term. It's possible. A savior, but but yeah, I I, I think I think through our team efforts, you know, a lot of people who um, would be sit- innocent people would be sitting behind bars who have become exonerated and yeah. had a life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I see in, um, in, I was in the DA's office uh, doing the conviction integrity unit when we were working on the Richard Miles case. And, and so I wasn't Richard Miles's attorney, but we were very much involved in, in, in helping him get exonerated. And um, that was a murder case in Dallas. No DNA that he was completely innocent of and just seeing what he has done with his life. And, and he was, I mean, he wasn't, he was, he was a good kid when he got convicted. It's not like he had to do a big turnaround or anything. He was very, I think he was 19 and uh, came from a good family uh, and, and was, you know, wrongly convicted of a murder. He had nothing to do with. Uh, And you know, we were able to help get him exonerated when I was in DA's office and seeing, you know, the nonprofit he started, uh, Miles of Freedom, hmm. seeing the family he started, you know, <laughs> his, you know, wonderful wife and kids that. Uh Excuse me.
2: No, I, I go.
1: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Now, seeing what he's done with his life since he got out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine how moving that must be for you to know that and to see him do what he's done.
1: Um, I mean, he's uh, uh, just, you know, a wonderful person, uh, a CNN hero, you know. I mean, he's gotten now started to get some national attention because of what he's done with his nonprofit. And still... If I ask him to come speak to my class, he comes and speaks to my class.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something I I think about a lot or I try to think about is the areas in which, you know, we're storytelling animals and people who get accused of something, it's like a witch hunt a a lot of times. People who are accused with a label, it often does stick to them, whether or not there's any truth to it. True. And— we have a hard time, you know, so, so much of this comes back to just human nature and combating human nature, and the system is supposed to be designed to fight back against some of our psychological worst tendencies, like assuming people are guilty who are, right. who someone says is guilty. That's the whole idea
1: behind... Or assuming somebody's guilty because they look different than us.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That you're supposed to be innocent until you're proven guilty that is a hell of a hard thing to do when someone doesn't look like you and someone has been accused of something heinous that has happened and there's uncertainty around what happened and you don't know and there's someone that you can lay blame lay it on. Off on yeah and have some sort of emotional catharsis believing that you have you've done so but one thing just as a a person growing up in this world it is astonishing to me how ignorant we are about almost everything, and that doubt really should be that's the healthy approach to any to strong everything. conviction that, yeah. that I have ever held. Yeah, uh, because time and experience has just taught me often that, with few exceptions, life is just far more complicated than I understand. Right. And what I would be curious to know from your perspective, right? We look back in history at thing, hor- horrific things that people used to do in, his- in history, burning witches, slavery, Jim Crow, uh, and we regard those people, how could they ever live in a I system know. like that? right? And we have, I think, modern self-righteousness of thinking, well, we're, we're so, so much, much better. better. Yeah. And in some ways, society has improved. Yeah. But the question I like to come back to is, what are we doing right now that our great-grandchildren will look at us and say, what the hell were you doing? How how could you just walk around the world knowing that this was happening and not have just an utter sense of, I of injustice? Um, I have to imagine the, the the criminal justice system at large would be sh- on your short list. Front, front and center. Front and center. Yeah. And so what are the pieces of ignorance that we can remove from our collective social justice assessment of what's going on that can for people who are listening to this our potential jurists our potential our, our lawyers could be judges someday what what can help you know readjust our the way we th- approach these subjects that c- could help improve things
1: gosh i, I th- this sounds kind of negative uh, but i'd say never believe the police <laughs> never believe the police um, I mean, the the police unions in particular are so responsible for this false narrative that has been driven, this self serving false narrative that has been driven about what crime is all about and what policing is all about. Um, I, I I think you know probably because I think about what you're just talking about a lot. What you know you know. It, it, People, you know, visit Auschwitz and and come back with those horrible stories. Well, what are we doing now that's not that different, mm. you know? Uh, but I, I think, um, you know, I think what people are going to look at is the mass incarceration, you know, and why, and, and 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 what was the purpose of that, and what did it accomplish, and and who benefited from it, mm. and and it's 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 all shameful, you know. Um, I, I, uh, um, I, 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 guess, I, I, I guess that P pe- I, I just, you know, in, in honestly, the last four years have just blown my mind and highlighted this. I just wish people would engage in critical thinking, you know, uh, you know, I, this is going to sound terrible, but I just, I just. Never realized such a large percentage of Americans were so stupid. Mm. <laughs> I mean that that's not going to make me any friends to say that, but 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 so many people have were able to to buy into these these totally ludicrous belief systems. Yeah, and uh, you know, um, and maybe to some extent, always will. But I I I. I i uh I don't know if those people are incorrigible or what yeah, you know I don't know if they're ever gonna see it yeah if they don't see it now yeah and i'm you know I'm kind of talking in code here, but you know, but <laughs> you know yeah if 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 um if you storm the capital or sympathize with the people who storm the capital, I just don't know that you're ever gonna see it, yeah you know.
0: And for people who do want to help, let's say speaking about mass incarceration, incarceration specifically, um, l- people from all walks of life, normal people who just want to volunteer lawyers who are interested in getting involved in the work. How can people help? What, what, what can be done from a citizen's perspective to try to combat some of these injustices from your perspective?
1: Um, you know, that's, I, I wish I was better at answering that question because because yeah. we get a lot of people who want to help and want to volunteer, and 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 I'm not real good at being able to put them to work. Yeah, um, I, I um, that's that's definitely something I need to work on because there's a lot of well intentioned people out there that 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 really do want to help, and um, it's it's you know the legal aspect of this work is so specialized it's hard to plug them in. Um, we do a lot of policy work too, uh, particularly with the the legislature that's in session now. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever it's in session, we've got um, our our um, um, featured bill really is is the jailhouse informant bill, where we're we're asking that a law be passed where before a jailhouse informant can testify against um, a defendant, that the judge has to hold a hearing and determine whether this person is really credible and reliable before the jury gets to hear them because as it is now, the judge may think they're the biggest liar in the world. And, and, but he, that doesn't give the judge the power to keep them off the stand. Yeah. And, and jurors don't know jurors think, well, if the judge let them on the stand. He must believe them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we do a lot of policy work and, and frankly who we're often fighting are the police unions, um, who, you know, whatever we want, they don't want, you know, uh, it yeah. seems like and and the politicians are much more scared of the police unions than they are of the innocence project you know
0: uh <laughs> yeah yeah how does the innocence project generally have enough legal resources to meet the demand from inmates who are clamoring for your assistance and help no in i mean you know
1: that no i mean it, it's it, it 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 is such a um tedious and long process to identify the right cases because we're you know, we we're pretty narrow in our mission and our focus because I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of injustices out there that are not necessarily tied to an innocent person being convicted. You know, um, but that's what we limit ourselves to. I mean, that's what we do hmm. uh, is is innocent people who are convicted, and so a lot of times, you know, by the time so much bullshit is piled up that they're in prison, you know, it it it. It, it's a very lengthy process to decide who really is factually and objectively innocent yeah you know uh, I mean there's there's certainly um a lot of inmates who got screwed by the system and 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 um and, and shouldn't be in prison perhaps but maybe they really did what they are accused of doing you yeah. know um maybe they really did. Possess an ounce of cocaine, hmm. you know. Maybe they're not really innocent of that, and that doesn't mean they should be serving life in prison, yeah. you know. Um, but we don't. That's not what we do, and so it 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 is pretty tedious and time consuming to to um, to identify people who are factually innocent, yeah. Because I mean, that's what we do.
0: What is what's the ideal client for you, right? Like, it, I'm thinking of if somebody is listening to this who might be in prison. Um, what are the, what are the circumstances or, uh, specifics of a, of a case that would be right in the sweet spot of like there, this is, you've sifted through a lot of potential clients who are interested in your services.
1: This one really
0: lights you up as a, a the real deal as something that you actually might be able to work with.
1: Well, you know, ideally in, in my mind, and, and of course there's exceptions. I mean, the, the, the San Antonio four, was an exception but um um ideally it's it's a case where it's it, it's it's a clear scenario either they did it or they didn't somebody did this crime and either it was the person who got convicted or it was somebody completely different Yep. so that you, you know the lines are drawn you know so many cases you look at them you go i don't know what happened nobody's ever going to know what happened in that case you know um And and, and, and it's, you know, we can wade in, but, you know, it's it's, there's just never going to be any clear answers. Um, But but the cases where there is the potential for a clear answer and then and then there are ways by which you can test. You know, different hypotheses. You know, almost scientifically, really mm-hmm. test different hypotheses, corroborate, and it, not only is there a clear answer, but there is a credible narrative of innocence. Um, you know, it, it's not simply well, you know, all their witnesses were full of shit. Well, you know, it, there there is a, a a clear narrative of innocence that can be tested and corroborated and presented in court, mm-hmm. and 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 that makes more sense than the state's narrative of guilt yeah you know
0: does that Uh, almost always need to involve dna evidence or new dna evidence
1: no uh, no it it it, you know obviously i mean it almost never does anymore Hmm. um but it it, you know obviously it's helpful if if there is dna evidence but um um but it, it it doesn't have to involve DNA evidence. No, I mean, um, you know, and there's always things you have to overcome, you know, in, in those cases. And most often it's eyewitness identification, you know. I mean, this this case, we're expecting, knock on wood, a favorable outcome from the Court of Criminal Appeals any day now. Um, but um, um, this case out of Harris County that, Six eyewitnesses um, say that my client committed this murder. Uh, And, uh, um, of course, none of them knew him. None none of them knew either the victim or the murderer. But um, fortunately, uh, years later, we were able to get hold of the raw DNA data that was collected from the victim's fingernails, who was stabbed and beaten to death. And, um, we were able to, um, identify the profile of the foreign donor there. In other words, the murderer. And it was not our guy and we were able to put it into CODIS and it identified the actual murderer, um, who has since confessed, but I was six eyewitnesses and, uh, you know, um, and he's still not exonerated. The other guy has been indicted and in is awaiting trial for this murder. And my our, the court of criminal appeals has delayed exonerating our guy. Um I mean it's been well over a year now. Um long story, but um, um but we're expecting a favorable outcome on that. Yeah. But fortunately that did involve DNA. But um but not all of them do. And 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 of course he had an alibi. He said I wasn't this is who I was with during that time. I wasn't murdering anybody. <laughs> and and he put the alibi witness on the stand. So no, he was with me. Jurors never, ever, ever believe an alibi defense. Hmm. I've never seen it. Hmm. So many of these DNA exonerations, these guys put on alibi defenses, because what else are you going to do? You know, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. I don't know anything about the case. Luckily, I can tell you where I was. And they put that, you know, Patrick Waller put on a security guard that gave him an alibi defense. Jurors never believe it. If the police say bullshit, the jurors, the jurors believe the police, not the alibi.
0: Last last question I want to ask you is um, we've touched on the future and how we as a society can get better at rendering justice more frequently and, and maybe more so ensuring that we limit injustice as much as possible. You've spoken to this a little bit, but I just want to give you one last opportunity to, to brainstorm or talk through ideas that we collectively can consider or initiatives we can adopt um, or new mentalities that we can keep in mind that make that possibility m- more likely in the future. If there's anything we want to add there.
1: Well, I wish I could answer that. You know, I know this is kind of the, your second run at me trying to get yep. me to answer that very yes, tough question. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, the, the best I can come up with is to put better people in positions of power. I mean, and, and, and this last election shows that we can do that, you know. You know, we put a better person in the White House. Mm. We elected two better senators out of or somebody did elected two better senators out of Georgia, you know. And and I expect that's gonna make a lot of difference. Um particularly when juxtaposed to what would have happened had um had Biden not won, had mm. had the two senators from Georgia not won, mm. you know. And and I see this in Texas. I mean I, I see you know, it's dangerous to get off into politics. But I see the idiots who are in charge in Texas, you know, uh, you know, the clown car of politicians that are in charge in Texas. Hmm. And and, uh, and and it affects the work I do, you know, uh, and, and it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, I've seen I've dealt with attorney generals and governors from other states who are so much better (laughs) than what we have here, you know? Uh, And, and, you know,
0: Specifically how?
1: You know, I I was fortunate enough to be on a panel that examined um, this case out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, Mayan Burrell, Mm. um, that started getting a lot of publicity because Amy Clovisar started, talking about that case as one of her successes when she was the um, county attorney for Hennepin County in Minneapolis. And, and it turns out, um, I, I mean, it's a long, long story, but it turns out he's al- almost certainly wrongly convicted. And, she um,
0: convicted him, or she helped to convict
1: him. Well, she was in office. She was the head. They call him county attorneys there, I think, but yeah. what we'd call a district attorney. Um, when he was convicted the first time, he was a juvenile. And, and then I think she'd gone on to US Senate when um, when he was convicted the second time his first trial was reversed yeah but um, but I mean she was using that on the campaign trail as, as one of the, the positive things she'd accomplished while she was you know county attorney or district attorney and so the media started scrutinizing it and it turned out he's almost certainly wrongfully convicted and and um, uh I was, you know, asked to be on and and did serve on a national panel to review that case um, that apparently she fully endorsed, et cetera. And in doing so, I got to see. um, And and maybe this is not a full um, um, fair cross section, but I got to see uh, the attorney general of Minnesota and and the governor of Minnesota and, and the former mayor of Minneapolis. In action. I mean, we interviewed the former mayor, the, the mayor who was the mayor at the time of this. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm as cynical as the next person. And these people are politicians. But but, you know, these people really cared about this stuff. I mean, I can tell. I mean, they, they're, they're, they were good people who really cared about this stuff and were trying to do the right thing. And ultimately, they did do the right thing. Uh, I mean, the case is still ongoing to some extent, but they did commute his sentence hmm. And um, uh, in the the head politicians in Texas aren't even in that class, you know. I mean, they're busy vis- busy perpetrating conspiracy theories or whatever, you know. And 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 of course, that's the fault of the people from Texas. I mean, you know, uh, who elect these morons. Yeah. Um. And uh, um. And and. <laughs> And it, it it you know, it hits me because I've got to deal with them in getting justice done, you know, and uh or you know, my idea of justice anyway. And um um and and, and it makes me see it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. You know, good people can run for powerful positions and get elected, and it makes a huge difference when yeah. that happens. Yeah. You know?
0: It, it got so much of this it culturally just resonant. I mean, I grew up in the Northeast and there is there is still a strong Puritan undercurrent in the culture there of um, being if one is accused people being very reputationally conscious and if, if you are labeled with some unwanted word, it being tragic for your reputation and your standing in the community. I don't know if this is exactly what you're uh, referring to in terms of the people you, you've dealt with in Texas, but it strikes me that just the overconfidence in opinions and kind of falling in line with some cultural narratives about, you know, potentially the police or how likely one is to be guilty of something that they're accused of, right? Just. It, adopting a mentality of greater humility and allowing yes. th- thinking more like a scientist or like, yes. like an objective self-aware person. Well,
1: yes. And, in kind of like I was saying a little bit earlier, critical thinking, you know? Yes.
0: Yeah. And what, I think what can, what can help with that, right? I told you the story earlier about my c- certainty about what happened in the, in the Duke lacrosse case. Right. and, that really changed my mind moving forward as to how i was really fooling myself that i i also am am, was and am susceptible to being fooled sure and fooled by people who are giving me a people who i respect the media professors giving me a story that i guess what i'm saying is it's possible for there to be a madness of crowds or mass delusion yeah uh, that most people can be wrong um, even people who you respect, I that's a very hard thing to fight back against, but uh, I, I don't know. I have to think better evidence and experience, at least personally, I think ha- has been helpful. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, but I, I, I feel like that that can help at least an individual begin to humble oneself about Absolutely. how certain you are about what you say.
1: Absolutely, yes, you know, uh, I, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, couldn't have said it better.
0: Yeah. Um, I've taken up a bunch of your time and, uh, well, I've taken uh, a bunch of yours. Thank <laughs> you. I, I want to just close personally by thanking you. Um, I know th- I have such admiration for people who fight uphill battles for people who have no power and have no voice and, um, have through just circumstance and tragedy been put into a a situation that they'd never deserved. And those people are mostly invisible in our society. And uh, I guess I just wanna say, in addition to thank you, that I I hope, and I, I do feel just as someone from my own generation that there's a lot of interest in what you do and a lot of gratitude for what you do. Um, and my hope is over time that the resources and respect and just cultural humi- humility, that we've been talking about gets more pronounced. And, um, thanks for sharing your story and thanks for all the, the work that you do. And, um, I know, you know, I'm very lucky for never having need- needed your services, but the people that have. Uh, i'm sure are also forever grateful so i I wish you guys the best of luck with everything you do
1: well thank you very much it just reminds me of my standard line when i give somebody my card i say you'll never need this but you may know somebody who does
0: (laughs) i'll take that on the way out okay
1: (laughs) thank you mike thank you